All right. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 25. Genesis 25. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the row of chairs in front of you. Follow along with me as I read for us Genesis 25, beginning in verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan, the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahairoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedama. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages, by their encampments, Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger 
than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. May God bless the reading of his word. I remember when DVDs first came out. You would put this disc into the DVD player, and if you didn't want to watch the previews, you could skip them and get right to the feature film, basically in a matter of seconds. With VHS tapes, however, if you didn't want to watch the previews, you would have to fast forward through them, which could take several minutes, and really, who has time for that? DVDs made it so much easier to get to the feature film quicker. Well, we have before us yet another genealogy in Genesis. And while it might be tempting to want to skip past all these names in order to get to the feature film, that is the life and times of Isaac, I hope that by now we realize that there is much we can learn from these genealogies. I hope that we don't just want to skip past the previews in order to get to the feature film quicker, but that we will see how these opening verses shape not only the rest of Genesis, but also much of biblical history. While most of these other sons of Abraham aren't mentioned again, there is one son who plays a significant role in biblical history, and that is Midian. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses would marry the daughter of Jethro, who was the priest of Midian. In Numbers 31, the people of Israel, they would go to war against Midian. In the book of Judges, the Lord would deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites through Gideon and his 300 men. But to think that all of that has its beginnings here in Abraham's genealogy. But Moses, the writer of Genesis, he wants to make something very clear right off the bat, and that is he wants to make clear that Isaac is the 
only legitimate heir. That Isaac is the only legitimate heir. Yes, Abraham had these other sons. He had sons through his second wife, Keturah, and he had sons through some of his concubines. I'm not really sure why Abraham had concubines, but he did, and apparently he had sons through them. But in verse 5, we read that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. And this is very important. Isaac receives the inheritance. These other sons, they don't receive the inheritance. Isaac receives the inheritance. There's a distinction being made between the inheritance that went to Isaac and the gifts that went to Abraham's other sons. In other words, they're not on the same level. And so what does Abraham do in verse 6 to make this distinction even greater? It says that Abraham sent his other sons away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So Abraham, he's making a distinction here between Isaac and these other sons, and he sends them eastward. Now, if you've been following along in our study of Genesis, then you know that to go to the east or to settle in the east is to go away from the presence of the Lord, away from the promise of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain, right, he went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, where? East of Eden. In Genesis chapter 11, the builders of the Tower of Babel went eastward. In Genesis chapter 13, Lot journeyed to the east toward Sodom, right? So all these individuals, they're, they're moving eastward away from the presence and the promise of the Lord. And then in the same way, Abraham is sending his other sons to the east. Now, this is not a punishment. He's not punishing his other sons. No, he's simply signifying that Isaac is the promised child. That Isaac is the promised child line and that Isaac is receiving the promised inheritance. But don't worry. At least three of the sons in this genealogy will be back. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter 60, I found this rather neat in my sermon preparation. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter 60, the prophet Isaiah, he's prophesying Israel's return from exile back to the land and what the Lord will do for them there. And in Isaiah chapter 60, beginning in verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart 
shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. Okay, so we've seen the three nations there, Midian, Ephah, and Sheba. And then it says, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Now, now notice how these three nations from the genealogy of, of Abraham will bring gold and frankincense to the restored people of Israel. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because what happens in Matthew chapter 2? Wise men from the east come to the place where Jesus was, and they fall down, and they worship him. And they bring him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, it isn't necessarily saying that this is a direct correlation and that these (coughs) sent-away sons are coming back, but it is an interesting correlation. Now, we, we may wonder about the spiritual destiny of these departed sons. Now, did they have faith in God? We, we don't know. Text doesn't tell us. But it would seem as though their descendants, according to Isaiah chapter 60, it, it would seem as though their descendants, they returned joyfully. And so it is for any who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, verse 29 says that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so at the foot of the cross, we see that we are all on the same level. And this is really good news for us. But then we come to some sad news in the text. In verses 7 to 8, we read, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So Abraham, he lived 175 years. Can you imagine that? You may recall that Abraham was 75 years old when he left Ur, which means that Abraham lived as a sojourner and foreigner in the promised land for 100 years. But as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 makes clear, Abraham was ultimately looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And by faith, Abraham entered into that city at his death. He found a place of permanence in God's country. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 15, the Lord had explicitly promised Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And it would seem as though that is exactly what has happened. Abraham died as an old man and full of years. Abraham's time on earth had come to an end. 
which is exactly what will happen to each one of us. In Psalm 139, verse 16, the psalmist writes, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. All our days are numbered. None of us dies too soon. Whether we die at one week or 100 years. But the hope that Abraham has and the hope that each one of us can have is that the Lord is not God of the dead, but of the living. Mark 12 verse 27 says. Verse 8 says that Abraham was gathered to his people. And he may have been buried with his wife, Sarah, in the cave of Machpelah, but he was ultimately gathered to his people until the day when the dead in Christ will be raised and we will always be with the Lord. That's the hope that Abraham has. That's the hope that, that every believer in Christ can have, that if we are gathered to our people, we will be raised to newness of life. Yet it is significant that Abraham would not only live in the promised land, but that he would also be buried in the promised land. Verse 9 says that Isaac and Ishmael, which I'm guessing was an interesting reunion, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. <coughs> Excuse me. A field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. Abraham's body buried in that tomb, the only piece of the whole land promised to Abraham that actually belonged to him would be a reminder to his descendants that they would one day possess the land. This burial plot, it would act as a down payment of the promise. Eventually, Abraham's descendants will receive the land as God had promised. And how we know this is because after the death of Abraham, it says that God blessed Isaac, his son, right? So that the promise continues. In Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham and blessed him. And now at the end of Abraham's life, God is passing that blessing on to Isaac. What has been promised to Abraham is now promised to Isaac. But what is interesting is that immediately after this pronouncement of blessing on Isaac, we read about the, the, the Toledoth, the, the generations of Ishmael. We read that Ishmael had 12 sons, 12 being a number of fullness and completion, who were princes according to their tribes, which is a fulfillment of Genesis 17, verse 20, where the Lord said to Abraham concerning Ishmael, he shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And so we see that God is doing exactly that. He is making Ishmael into a great nation. But it looks like Ishmael is the recipient of the promise and not Isaac. Ishmael had 12 sons who were princes. Jacob will only have two sons. It looks like the Lord is blessing Ishmael more than Isaac which should remind us of, of Cain and his offspring in Genesis chapter 4, right, who were pioneers of cities and, and agriculture and arts 
and technology. Right? They, they were considered to be the, the culturally elite compared to Seth and his offspring who were pioneers of worship, who all they did was call upon the name of the Lord. Ishmael and his descendants, they look like the culturally elite compared to Abraham and his descendants, which means that Abraham and, and now Isaac, they're going to have to continue to walk by faith in the promises of God where it might seem like things are working out better for the ungodly, but the Lord is building a kingdom. He's building a kingdom with Abraham and his descendants that is going to put the 12 princes of Ishmael to shame. And the two indications that we have of this is that one, Ishmael's descendants are going to settle outside of the promised land. Again, away from the presence and promise of the Lord. And two, Ishmael himself is going to settle over against all his kinsmen, which is what was predicted in, in Genesis uh, 16, verse 12, where the Lord said, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. That's coming true for Ishmael. In other words, Ishmael may look impressive, but in the end, he lives and he dies like everyone else. In fact, his life is one of restless existence, trying desperately to find peace, but finding only conflict. Maybe this describes you. Maybe this describes someone you know. But the difference between Ishmael and Abraham is that they were each gathered to their own people. As we have seen, Abraham is gathered to his people to one day be raised to newness of life. Where, where we who have uh, by faith put our trust in Jesus Christ, the same is true for us. But for those of us who, like Ishmael, choose to live our lives apart from the, the presence and the, the promise of the Lord, there is reserved for us eternal death. And so on that day, when we are gathered to our people, an ominous question is raised. Which people will that be? The ones who are raised to newness of life or the ones who receive eternal death? The next verse brings us a little bit more hope. Verse 19 says, these are the generations of Isaac. In other words, the Lord has not abandoned his plan to redeem and restore fallen humanity. The Lord has continued his res rescue mission through Abraham's son, Isaac. Now, if you remember, Genesis is divided into these 10 Toledoth sections which begin with the words, these are the generations of. It's just a, a way to, to divide up the book of Genesis. Uh, we've encountered the generations of the heavens and the earth, of Adam, of Noah, of the sons of Noah, of Shem, of Terah, and most recently, the generations of Ishmael. 
But we come now to the generations of Isaac. And we come with a certain sense of, of anticipation, right? Because we've seen how the Lord has brought about the miraculous birth of Isaac. And how the, the Lord spared Isaac from being sacrificed. And, and how the Lord providentially led Abraham's servant to find a suitable bride for Isaac. And so we wonder, what amazing thing is God going to do next? <clears throat> and to our surprise... There is yet another problem, yet another threat to God's promise. In verse 21, we are told that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. We thought we got past all of the barrenness, right? Well, like Sarah, Rebecca is also barren. And like Sarah, Rebecca waits a long time for children to be born to her. Verse 26 says that Isaac was 60 years old. When she bore Jacob and Esau, which means that Rebecca was unable to bear children for 20 years, which is very similar to Sarah, who waited 25 years for the birth of Isaac. But unlike Sarah, whose waiting is described in several chapters, Rebecca's waiting is described for us in a few words. She was barren. But the important point that Moses wants to make clear is that the Lord, in answer to Isaac's prayer, reverses Rebekah's barrenness. Verse 21 concludes, And the Lord granted Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And so just as the Lord did for Sarah, we see our faithful, covenant-keeping God continue the line of the seed of the woman through Rebecca, barrenness, like death, does not have the final word. It does not have the final word. God has the final word. But instead of being overjoyed, Rebecca is deeply troubled. Why? Because her pregnancy is excruciatingly painful. Verse 22 says the children struggled within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? The Hebrew word for struggle together here means to, to smash or crush. Literally, the children were crashing themselves inside her. The pain is so bad that Rebecca despairs of living. But it ultimately drives Rebecca to inquire of the Lord. And so in her time of distress, where does she go? She goes to the, to the Lord. And the Lord responds to her in verse 23, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so just as Abraham would father two sons, so also Isaac would father two sons. But this time the, the sons are from the same father and mother. So that's, that's new. In fact, they are twins. But just like Ishmael and Isaac, they are divided. One looks stronger than the other, 
but ultimately the older will serve the younger. According to uh, ancient Middle Eastern customs, the oldest would have all the rights and privileges of the, the firstborn, called the, the birthright. As the original hearers of this story, the Israelites were well acquainted with the firstborn birthright. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17, it says that the firstborn would receive a double portion of all that the father has, for he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. And so by, by saying the older shall serve the younger, the Lord was overturning not only human customs, but also seemingly his own law. This would indeed cause conflict, not only in the womb, but for the rest of their lives, even extending beyond their lives into the lives of their descendants, Israel and Edom. According to Numbers chapter 20, when Israel came out of Egypt, Moses requested the king of Edom, thus says your brother Israel, please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will go along the king's highway. We won't turn to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to Moses, you shall not pass. <laughs> Might as well the Lord of the Rings. Blessed, I come out with the sword against you. <coughs> Excuse me. After this, the fighting between Israel and Edom continued in 2 Samuel chapter 8. King David killed 18,000 Edomites. He put garrisons in Edom. And eventually all the Edomites become David's servants. But then Edom, I guess apparently, regains its independence and later sides with Babylon in driving Judah into exile. Psalm 137, verse 7, recalls this tragedy. tragedy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. It's not very nice. The battle between Israel and Edom continued even into the New Testament. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but King Herod, who ruled Israel harshly on Rome's behalf, Exterminating all who challenged him. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. And when Herod heard from the wise men that the king of the Jews had been born, what did he do? He sought to kill Jesus, ultimately having all the male children who were two years old and under killed. And so the battle rages on. But you can see the struggle right from Birth, verse 24, says, When Rebecca's days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was later called Jacob. Uh, if you're a fan of old Western movies, Esau sounds... A lot like the good guy, like a John Wayne type, right? He's tanned, he's hairy. Verse 27 says that he's a skillful hunter, a man of the field. 
He's a straight shooter. You kind of want him on your side, or so it seems. On the other hand, Jacob sounds a lot like the bad guy. Right? He's, he's self-serving and deceptive. Verse 27 says that Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. But he's a fighter who is always looking to get the advantage over his opponent. From a basic reading, it sounds like Esau's the good guy and Jacob's the bad guy. But then Esau is going to show himself to be impatient and impulsive, and governed by his feelings, preferring the physical over the spiritual. And suddenly they both sound like the bad guy. You know, we, we may even wonder why, why God would choose either of them. The distinction between the ten, twins becomes even more apparent in verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. And Rebekah loved Jacob. And if you grew up in a family where favoritism was prominent, then you know that this probably won't end well. With the Lord's declaration that the older shall serve the younger and that, these, that with these character descriptions that we have of, of Esau and Jacob, the stage is set for verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. The Hebrew word used for let me eat means to swallow greedily. That's a, a more literal translation would be let me gulp down or, or devour some of that red stuff. In Hebrew, it would actually be more like red, red. We, we don't even really know what it is. At least in the Garden of Eden, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Here, Esau just wants this red stuff, whatever it is. Hence, Esau's name is uh, nicknamed Edom, which means red. <coughs> Excuse me. Jacob responds in verse 31, sell me your birthright now. <laughs> now the way Jacob makes his demand suggested, he's been thinking about this for quite a while and he's quite willing to exploit his brother's moment of weakness. Ultimately, Esau's not going to die. He might feel like he's going to die, but he's not actually going to, to die. But Jacob, he, he sees his brother in a moment of weakness and he's going to exploit that with every chance that he gets. He's living up to his name, heel grabber, which is what Jacob means. Grab the heel. Esau responds, I'm going to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? Jacob sees his opportunity to seal the deal. He says in verse 33, swear to me now. Jacob wants to make it a, a legally binding agreement. And then we read the ominous ending that he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, and he drank, and he rose, and he went his way. Jacob is now in possession of the, the birthright of the, the firstborn. He's now, he's now surpassed Esau as the legally considered firstborn. And as for Esau, it's a tragic end. He satisfies his physical appetite, and that just goes on his way. But the closing words of, of Genesis 25 are truly heartbreaking. 
Thus Esau despised his birthright. Uh, to despise something is to, to, to treat it as worthless or to hold it in contempt. And we might think of Sarah, who gave her servant Hagar to her husband Abraham. He, in order to, to carry on the, the, the seed of the woman through her, right? The, the plan worked, but it wasn't what she wanted. And as a result, she looked with contempt on her mistress, just as Esau despised his birthright. Esau is a slave to his passions and desires. He sees what he wants and he takes it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. It's a sad end for Esau. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't be driven by your passions in such a way that you take short-term gain for long-term loss. Esau doesn't care about God's promise. In fact, he despises it. He would rather give up God's promise for, for temporary pleasure. Esau has shown himself unworthy to carry on the line of the seed of the woman. But then Jacob is also showing himself Unworthy to carry on the line of the seed of the woman. Like Abraham and Sarah, the heel grabber cannot wait for God to fulfill his promise in his own way. Jacob ruthlessly demands the birthright when his brother is weak. Later, he will deceive his father for the blessing when Isaac is old and blind. And so what this does is it makes God's sovereign choice of Jacob one of sheer grace, because as we'll see in the biblical story, Jacob will be the line through which God's covenant promises will pass. And so we see that in his grace, God chooses the younger, the lesser, even when the younger is a selfish heel grabber like Jacob. But then God has a history of choosing the younger over the older. Right? He chose the younger Abel over Cain, the younger Isaac over Ishmael, here the younger Jacob over Esau. He'll later choose the, the younger Ephraim over Manasseh, the younger David over his brothers, the younger Solomon over his brothers. Finally, God chooses Jesus, who is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, to be the seed of the woman through which God's promises would pass to all people. And Jesus would in turn choose lowly disciples to be his representatives to the nations. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus said, many who are first will be last and the last first. And in case we were 
little confused by that saying. Jesus illustrates this, as he often did with his teaching, with a parable. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The laborers, they agree to work for a denarius, the usual daily wage. The landowner hires more laborers at nine, again at 12, and again at three, and again, lastly, at five. Five o'clock. And these last ones, they work only one hour, but they're paid first. And to their surprise, what do they receive? They receive a denarius, a full day's wage. Those who had come first are paid last. And they also receive a denarius, a full day's wage. They grumble that they had worked the whole day, yet had received the same wage as those who had worked for only one hour. But the owner, the landowner, he says something revolutionary, maybe to that time. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? It's a penetrating question. Jesus then drives home the point of the parable. So the last will be first and the first last. When the the last become first in the kingdom of heaven, they will know that they have not earned the kingdom. They can't possibly come to that conclusion. They have not earned the kingdom. It is the king's free gift. God is a generous king. Through his son, Jesus, he gives even us Gentiles the kingdom. The last become first only because of God's sovereign grace. But the question is, does this offend us? Are are we offended by this story of scandalous grace, that, that God would dare to save someone like Jacob? You know, at least save Esau too. He's going to save Jacob? If we are offended by this, it might be that we don't know ourselves. It might be that we don't know how profoundly sinful we are in every dimension of our being. The Apostle Paul clearly states that left to ourselves, we are spiritually dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 verse 1 says. We, we are not seeking after God. Instead, apart from Christ, we are God's enemies. And so if we are offended by God's scandalous grace, it might be an indication that we don't know ourselves all that well, but it might also be an indication that we don't know God. He is the king, not us. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, says all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does, according to his will, among the hosts, of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
God is not bound by our cultural conventions. He is not bound by what we think a, a good God would do. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is loving, he is righteous, and he is just in all that he does. We, we can say with, with Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe concerning Aslan the Lion, our God is not safe, but he is good. And he is the king. Because we are sinful and helpless to save ourselves, the only possible hope for us is the atoning death of his son in the person of Jesus Christ, who lovingly suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sins. The greatest laying down his life for the least. So that by faith in Jesus, we might be the recipients of God's grace. Not because of any good in us, but because of the goodness of Christ. In his sovereign grace, God has chosen what is weak, what is foolish, what is despised, what is least by the world's standards to be his victorious people. You know, when, when enemies surround us, or when tides of sorrow rise within us, or when trials are abounding, we can stand firm on the Lord Jesus Christ our rock, and our redeemer. That is where our hope is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you rule over heaven and earth, uh, including over our lives. Uh, when we are confronted with death or barrenness or family conflict or envy at, at what others have or, or don't have or, or whatever the case may be, teach us, oh God, to trust you for all things. Keep us near the cross. Preserve us from all evil, directing our eyes towards heaven where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory. We know that this is only possible through the work of Christ on the cross, and so we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.